Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journeys here at the University of Victoria. Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host today, Liz MacArthur. My guest today is Sarah Louise de Croza, who's doing a master's in anthropology here at the University of Victoria. Thanks for being my guest today. Thank you very much for having me. I have to say that my interest was piqued in your research here at the university because I saw the title of your three-minute thesis presentation, which was Hips Don't Lie. And it was talking about uh, childbirth and pe- marks on pelvises. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. No, the three-minute thesis was, um, I had to really shorten down the title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you really have to only explain it in three minutes, um, to childbirth and the human skeleton. And uh, my thesis does indeed examine uh pelvic scarring um, in the human skeleton, particularly the female skeleton. Hmm. The interesting thing is that for a long time uh, in biological anthropology, which is the the sort of subfield of anthropology that I specialize in, these kinds of scars were really thought to only represent um, childbirth uh, and that were only found to be found in women. Interestingly, not only do they, they also appear in males, so obviously Hmm. something else going on than just childbirth, but amongst women, these scars don't actually represent childbirth in the sense that there are women who we know haven't had children who do present with them and vice versa. So there's got to be something else going on here, um, which is kind of the, the sort of the the opening idea that I started my, my master's thesis with. Right. Um, so I've actually looked, my research really looks at the influence of things like uh, body size. So things like how tall you are, how much you weigh, um, and how that might affect the presence of this kind of pelvic scarring on both males and in females. Hmm. Um, And also looking at things like uh, differences in pelvic shape and pelvic canal size and shape. So the pelvic canal is, of course, where the baby passes through. So uh, variation in that in women uh, in sort of in our everyday lives will do things like um, particularly women who have a constriction at different parts of the canal may decide to have a a cesarean section because birth might be kind of impossible uh, Mm. without it because of that constriction. Uh, But certainly when we look at um, populations in the past, that kind of thing wasn't available, that kind of procedure wasn't available. So childbirth may have been more difficult or more easy depending on um, variations in the pelvic canal. And if we're seeing this kind of scarring on males, there must be something that males are doing from a sort of muscular, skeletal perspective that would leave that kind of scarring on the pelvis. Mm -hmm. So that's really what my thesis is exploring as to sort of how things like body size and shape might affect pelvic scarring if we're seeing it in males and in females. So you're talking about uh, scars that are on the actual pelvic bone. That's correct, yeah, on the surface of the bone. Oh, and in any... Uh, specific scars or just are you looking at all the scarring? Um, There's sort of a quote-unquote classic example of parturition scarring. Parturition is is another word for uh, childbirth. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of technical term. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, essentially... the scars that have been looked at in biological anthropology previously were what they termed dorsal pits. Dorsal, like the dorsal fin, so mm-hmm. on the back of one part of the bone um, in the pelvis. Mm-hmm. It looks like little scoops of bone have been taken out of the bone, mm. um, which really doesn't 
look very much like any other example of scarring or sort of alteration on the bone surface that osteologists uh, usually look for. Um, so that's one very, very classic example. But my thesis also makes inclusion, also includes, I should say, um, other examples of uh, pelvic scarring at different parts of the pelvis as well. Mm -hmm. I didn't just want to explore what's happening at the front of the pelvis, but also what's happening at the back of the pelvis. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about uh, a pregnant woman, for example, um, her walk changes significantly with this developing uh, infant inside her and the relationship between her thigh bones and her pelvis changed a lot mm -hmm. uh, because of mostly the ligaments inside the pelvis changing relationship because of the um, hormones that are flooding through the system during pregnancy. And that kind of change, even though it's technically happening with muscles, muscles attach to bone mm -hmm. and bone is a living tissue. So bone responds to any changes that occur in muscles and in ligaments by having these different alterations on them. So things like scarring, little bumps, little areas of roughness that you don't normally see um, on the rest of the surface of bone. Hmm. It's interesting that you describe bone as living tissue, which yeah. it is. But I think when we think about um, about bones or mm -hmm. people studying bones, we think about, you know, finding a skeleton and looking at a skeleton, that kind of thing. So how far back are you looking at? In what examples of the scarring are you studying? Is it something that's fairly, are you looking at recent pelvises? Are you looking at really, really old ones? So my uh, the sample I used for my study um, was made up of two collections. Um, I really had to pick those skeletal collections specifically because I didn't want to completely discount the influence of something like childbirth um, on the pelvis, pelvis that I was looking at. So in terms of skeletal collections, you don't always have that information as to how, you know, which women in this particularly archaeological um, sort of populations, which women had children, how many they had. So I, I very much had to sort of narrow down my search um, uh, based on those criteria. So I ended up uh, looking at a uh, forensic collection, which is from the University of New Mexico uh, in the States, mm -hmm. um, and that's by donation. So the individuals who decided to donate their bodies um, to the collection um, make notes of things like how many children they have had. So I had access to that information um, in that sort of modern skeletal collection. Mm. Um, it was established in 1984, so it's a it is you know we're talking about sort of modern times. Um, the other collection I looked at is a very popular um, skeletal collection in biological anthropology. It's one that's been looked at a number of times. Um, it's the Spitalfields uh, Christchurch collection. Um, Christchurch is a church in London, England, and uh, the men and women who are buried in that church, who are buried between sort of the 17th to 19th centuries, um, they were buried in coffins that had coffin plates on them, which you think, okay, that's not really that important. But the great thing is we have their names, mm -hmm. when they were born and when they died, which wonderfully, churches are fantastic at keeping things like parish records. Mm. Parish records give us access to marriage, uh, marriage certificates, uh, burials, and more importantly, baptism records. So again, even though, of course, there's a difference between how many children a woman has compared to how many children she baptizes, for an archaeological uh, collection, we can basically use the baptism records as sort of uh, evidence of how many children women had. Hmm. So it's one sort of Victorian England collection and a modern North American collection that I'm looking at. So hmm. I didn't specifically go in to look at comparisons across time, but it's a nice sort of it's a nice element to be able to look at in looking at things like, of course, how lifestyle is going to influence um, your occupation, uh, your health, uh, or at least in terms of your diet, that all that kind of stuff that really does affect, um, of course, not only your muscles, but equally your bones. 
What, uh, what kind of information can you get from looking at pelvic scarring? You talk a little bit about uh, how childbirth affects the pelvis, uh, but also about these similar scars on male pelvis. Mm-hmm. So what are you hoping to get from all of this research that you're doing? Really, uh, more than anything else, um, to change the terminology, mm-hmm. I have to say, because the terminology for these kinds of scars is childbirth or parturition scarring, which really very much says it has to be happening in females and it has to be associated with childbirth. Previous studies, even before the project that I've started in my master's, previous studies have already said that this kind of scarring does not associate directly with childbirth in the sense that there's no direct link between a woman has a woman gives birth to a child, she will have childbirth scarring. Um, and if we're actually seeing it in males, we really need to reevaluate um, what that scarring really means, firstly. So I, I would really hope that my project would be able to say definitively, we need to change this terminology to something that's more neutral, something like pelvic scarring. Right. Um, that is instead of continually, you know, rehashing this idea that it has to do with childbirth. I'm not saying childbirth doesn't influence it, but that at its base, childbirth probably doesn't cause it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely one thing I'd like to do. I guess the other thing that uh, I'd like to explore is trying to think about, um, and which is sort of another influence in terms of the other research I'm doing, how we sort of contribute to the ideas that um, body size and body shape does have an effect on the variation we see, not just in things like clear, like things like thigh bone length um, that are going to affect uh, things like muscle strength, but also thinking about what's happening at the pelvis in those terms, because uh, the pelvis is, you know, this really, really complex uh, organization of bone and muscle. It's one of these, you know, beautifully unique things that make human beings human mm-hmm. when we think about walking on two legs and the sort of the difficulty we have in giving birth compared to our primate cousins mm. um, who have a very, very different organization of the pelvis, uh, which actually affects how they give birth to 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 their infants. So that's definitely a way that I wanted to sort of think about not just the pelvis with respect to movement, but the pelvis in terms of um, what it does at the obstetric or sort of childbirth level, hmm. definitely. I think another thing to sort of think about is that um, something like parturition scarring or childbirth scarring, it's interesting that when I was looking at sort of introductory biological anthropology textbooks, it gets mentioned sort of saying, okay, well, some people have said that you can, you know, um, look at uh, how many uh, children a woman has had by these scars. They don't explain what it's caused by. They don't explain how frequent it is. And they don't explain how accurate it is. So you've got some textbooks that kind of drop it. And I think students are really, people are really interested in in things like, you know, childbirth is one of these essential life components, you yeah. know. <laughs> um, so people are definitely interested in what it means. Um, but there's no clear answer mm. as to the sort of thing that it may, uh, as to what it may be caused by and what it really means. Uh, and interestingly, in different um, parts of the world, it's actually taught as a way definitively to define if women have had children or not, which is wrong. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> which is wrong. Uh, and it's actually really interesting. I uh, just came back from uh, a professional conference, uh, a physical anthropologist professional conference, and I presented some of my results of my research. And I had a number of um, of different scholars in that area who were saying, "I'm really, really glad that you're sort of re-examining this." And I was con- I was really surprised to hear that this continues to be taught as a sort of clear method of estimation in the same way that physical or biological anthropologists look at things like estimating age or estimating sex, whether it's a male or female of a mm. skeleton, which is there's a lot of other stuff that goes with that too, but it's. I think it's interesting that you know, 
people ha- keep stating this without going a little bit deeper as to what it really means. Mm. Uh, in your research so far, have you gotten any clues as to what could be actually causing the scarring, say, in men or maybe something other than childbirth in women? Very good question. I have not been able to find, I have some ideas, um, things like amongst women, pregnancy may affect it from a muscular perspective, right. just because of some of the ligaments that are being loosened um, in the pelvis, particularly at the back of the pelvis. Mm. Um, and I have to say, those pits that I, I mentioned earlier, um, they do appear at the site where uh, one of the major muscles involved in childbirth attaches. Uh. So again, childbirth may not directly cause it, but it might have an influence on it. For males, I I, I wish I could definitively say mm. um, what might cause them in males. The one thing I can I can sort of point to with respect to future work that um, I would like to do, and I would very much very much encourage other scholars to look into is uh, things like um, high level, like males doing particular kinds of very high stress athletic sort of activities. Mm. Um, many of which, when you look at sports medicine literature, will actually report that men um, experience pain at the front of the pelvis in the same area that women experience pain in after they've given birth. Hmm. So from a muscle perspective, that's kind of the approach that I'm, I'm trying to take with it. I, I cannot definitively say. Um, I'm really hoping that my PhD, the work that I'm going to be doing in my PhD, will be able to answer exactly that question because mm-hmm. the thing that I really discovered with this project is that from a biological anthropology perspective, there is a bit of a gap in in the literature in terms of what's actually happening if you sort of, in your mind's eye, can zoom in what's actually happening at the uh, the interface between bone and muscle on the inside of the pelvis. We know about what's happening on the outside right. um, when we think about things like how human beings move, um, the sort of energy that's involved when we transfer from one step to the next, all that kind of thing. But on the inside of the pelvis, particularly when we're thinking about childbirth and women uh, and all of these different muscles that are attaching in different areas of the pelvis – I haven't found a lot of information that looks at it from a bioanthropology perspective. There are plenty of obstetric gynecologists who are looking at it. There are people in anatomy who are looking at it, but they are not looking at it with respect to what happens to bone after death Mm. or only focusing on just bone. So really for my PhD, I'm hoping to be able to sort of get um, some uh, access to information that will allow me to sort of put those two together. So Mm. looking at how muscle works and how bone works and how they they work together. So right now for your research, are Mm -hmm. you taking the information that the the gynecologists and uh, people in anatomy are putting together and using that in your own research? Yes, I have definitely tried to sort of connect it through with respect to the literature I've been exploring, um, as well as some of the discussion points uh, that have come up after my results. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've certainly sort of made inclusion of some other types of child birth scarring that came from fields other than biological anthropology because, again, interestingly, uh, anatomists are interested in this uh, and certainly uh, people who are involved in any kind of healthcare associated with childbirth are interested in what's happening at the pelvis um, in terms of bone and muscle, but they're interested uh, when a particularly odd case comes up or a case that um, obstetric gynecologists can look at and learn from. Mm. Um, because in the end, and quite rightly so, their interest is about having the mother and baby safe and healthy yeah. um, from the uh, the actual moment of childbirth. Whereas a biological anthropologist comes in much, much later yeah. and uh, is, is looking at it from a different perspective, for mm. sure. So I have tried to make as much of an inclusion um, with that kind of work in my own, in my own, uh, 
my own thesis mostly because I also think that a multidisciplinary approach is really important hmm. um, and it gives us – and I think that's – I, I hope that that could be said for a lot of different fields, but in something like uh, bioanthropology, there are plenty of people who are looking at uh, other elements of the, the human body because – as much as I keep talking about the pelvis and specific specific muscles and that kind of thing, um, the human body is an integrated whole. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very very easy to get caught up in only focusing on one particular area, focusing on you know very specific muscles and very specific locations. But you know you have to also understand that the 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 human body, both in life and after death. Um, does function as integrated whole. You can't just zoom in on one thing without being able to zoom back out and look at the bigger picture. I was going to ask you about that. You're studying the pelvis in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. Are there other physical anthropologists that study, say, like, I don't know, a shoulder socket or a specific part of the body in a similar, very focused way? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, There are, when you want to think about limbs, limb use is another really, uh, a really important element of biological anthropology, looking at um, classic example, uh, spear throwing. And for things like uh, what's actually happening at the shoulder when uh, where different muscles attach um, and how that affects the strength of throwing spears, you know, whether it be through Neanderthals, whether it be through early, uh, early hominin groups. I think a lot of it, when we look at limb uses, thinking about human beings in terms of activity and activity that will allow us to feed ourselves, that will allow us to move across the landscape, limb length and how limb length actually allows us to walk better or run better um, over different terrain. Mm -hmm. A lot of biological anthropologists, if we want to move just beyond humans, are also focusing on uh, different sort of early primate groups or even that sort of really interesting period of transition from, you know, uh, non-human primate to to human primate, Uh, thinking about things like hands grasping and what that means when we come down from trees, what that means when uh, human beings have these, you know, uh, modern humans have these really fantastic dexterous hands mm-hmm. that we can do lots of really fine manipulation with and abs- we can certainly see that in uh, chimpanzees and gorillas uh, also in orangutans but uh, you know trying to sort of understand that you know that magical missing link what's going right. on there in terms of you know these key elements that allowed us to do things like make tools um, you know plan ahead you know actually like put put time aside so that we could gather food for the moments in time where food was going to be scarce so mm-hmm. Um, I think there are definitely biological anthropologists focusing on specific parts of the body in terms of how they are used to allow us to succeed in in living. Right. Really, yeah. Um, and it again, it, it is really it's really interesting because you read lots of different literature on people who work on the shoulder, people who work on the hip, people who work on the knee mm-hmm. or the foot or the hand. Um, and it can get very, very specific and very, very, very nitty-gritty, which you need. But I think that at the same time, it's really important to be able to sort of take a step back and also think about how diet, how lifestyle, how uh, elements of how, you know, even um, certainly how social life plays into that. Mm. Because we all know that from a social perspective, you know, social, um, social sort of events, social interactions will affect um, how we feed ourselves, how we move across the landscape, how we interact with one another in such a way as to continue the species, (laughs) (laughs) all those kinds of elements. So Mm -hmm. there are people who absolutely do focus on different parts of Mm. different parts of the body. And there is, I'm not trying to make it sound like I'm the only person looking at the pelvis. There are plenty of people, um, including my advisor, who are doing a lot of uh, really interesting work with the pelvis for Mm. sure. What drew you to this? Why did you start? Why were, did you start a project uh, on this topic specifically? I think, like a lot of people who came across something like parturition or childbirth scarring, um, I 
read about it in one of the textbooks and I remember thinking, uh, this is really interesting. Like I really think that um, something like we, we talk, keep talking about age in the skeleton and how, you know, sexual uh, differences in sex um, affect the skeleton, differences in, in diet and lifestyle affect the skeleton. But what about something as, as key as birth? Um, and I just remember thinking this is really – this would be great if it was a one-to-one correlation. But mm. the more I, I read about it, the more I thought there's a lot more going on here. Um, I, I I think it was literally just a, a not very exciting. It was an academic paper that I just remember thinking I actually stumbled across it when I was reading for another um, another project I was writing in my undergrad, and I thought this is kind of interesting. And I sort of ran with it and and you know did a little bit more reading on it and spoke to a number of different um, professors about it, mm-hmm. um, who sort of gave me this big caution. By the way, parturition scarring in biological anthropology has mixed reviews. And I thought, oh, okay, this could be interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, the pelvis is uh, from the very beginning, when the first human osteology class I ever I ever took, I just thought the pelvis was one of the most incredible parts of parts of the human the human skeleton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to talk to someone about who's studying anthropology, who's talking mm-hmm. about things that are very like anatomically oriented. How would you sort of define the differences between the outcomes that you want from your research and say the outcomes that someone working in anatomy wants for their research? Because it seems like there's a lot of crossover there. There is certainly a lot of crossover. Um, and it's not to say that there aren't anatomists who are considering things like lifestyle. Right. Um, I think that uh, biological anthropologists tend to work at the population level. Mm. Whereas an anatomist, a lot of the time, they tend to work in case studies. Um, as in, we have a 30-year-old woman who presents with this kind of, uh, okay. you know, uh, pelvic problem, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, again, there are plenty of anatomists who kind of are able to look at the population as well. But on average, I think almost all biological anthropologists think about it from a sort of broader population perspective mm. um, and that we cannot discount things like activity levels and lifestyle and diet um, in the past you know, compared to an anatomist who's really thinking about, you know, nutritional levels in the present. Right. Um, and that not saying that every biological anthropologist works with individuals in the past. There are plenty of them who do uh, work looking at, you know, who, who do studies where they put people on treadmills and get them to walk mm. carrying different loads and see what that does. But a lot of the time these are proxies for what we see in the past. It's all of it, I think, in many ways is trying to really get at um, elements of life in the past and how it affected the bodies that we from the past that we're looking at now. Hmm. Um, now you mentioned that you're going on to do your PhD. So how much longer do you have doing your master's, and then uh, it will just be a continuation of your research here at the university? Yeah, I actually am going to be completing my PhD at the University of Cambridge um, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. Um, and I am going to finish up uh, my thesis here very shortly. I'm hoping to defend uh, between mid-May and the end of May this year. So coming oh. up very soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm technically in my second year of my master's. So, right. Yeah. Any reason in particular why you're going to Cambridge? Is it like the best pelvis people there? <laughs> uh, yeah, it is very much driven by uh, mm-hmm. the advisor who I'm going to be working with there, um, who uh, whose work is fantastic. Um, he has done a lot of really fantastic work looking at uh, the variation in, in human body size and shape um, mm-hmm. throughout 
oh my gosh, uh, most of the world. <laughs> he, he really has a, a fantastic research lab um, at Cambridge. So that's definitely one, one component of it. And from a personal level, um, I have, I've been you know, lucky enough to meet him and he is uh, one of these wonderful scholars who does fantastic work and is a fantastic person mm. um, and really, really great to work with. And I've had such a positive experience um, at UVic in the anthropology department with my advisor. And I, I really would like to be able to continue that at my in my PhD. And mm. it's kind of hard to say no to the university that Charles Darwin went to. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, that seems like it'd be a dream for anyone. Yeah, it, 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 I'm a bit of an Anglophile, so oh. yeah. Perfect. Yeah, yeah like it's that. worked out. I mean, it's been an absolutely, it's been a blast these last few months. It's mm. been unreal. So it's been, yeah, that's been a really fantastic and very exciting kind of next step. Has your research sort of changed the way you, say, watch people walk around? Or do, are you, do you find yourself looking at, at people's hips or pelvises and thinking about, uh, like, why are you walking like that? Is that going to scar your bones? 100%. Really? <laughs> I know that sounds so strange. Um, but, yeah, it does. It does mm. affect the way that you think about And, in fact, that I, the way that I think about my own body in terms of, you know, mm. when I haven't stretched enough or, or different areas that I think, oh, I really, gosh, I'd really, I almost, it sounds terrible, I'd really love to sort of be able to have an excuse to have an x-ray of my own pelvis just to see what it looks like or, you know, an MRI of my own pelvis just to see what it looks like. But it does affect it. And mm. I think, again, um, which is definitely one of the, the strong points of looking at the anatomical literature I mentioned, they also tend to think about um, the body in motion, mm. um, which is, again, a, a, another great thing that sports medicine looks at, um, not just thinking about the body as static and sort of lying on a, a table, Um I do definitely analyze people's gait for sure. Mm. Um, and uh, it's really, <laughs> I end up asking like women, like very pregnant ladies, like how far along are you? And uh, do you know about this? And like, are you experiencing any pain at this part of the back of your pelvis? They're <laughs> ladies I know. I'm oh, not going good. up to total strangers. <laughs> not going up to total strangers. But um, mm. yeah, I think I think it makes it all the more interesting. Mm. Yeah. Have And has anything really surprising for you come up during your research that you really weren't expecting? I think that there are a few results uh, with respect to these kind of, you know, quote unquote classical examples of a childbirth scarring that um, it's interesting that amongst males and females, I was I was sort of thinking there might be a little bit more of a correlation between mm -hmm. uh, things like body size and these really classic examples of parturition scarring. Whereas interestingly, at least uh, my results have shown that it's um, these other examples that haven't been looked at as frequently of, of patrician scarring that tend to associate more with body size and shape. So that's been really interesting to sort of think about these these variables, which when I, I put them into the study, I thought, well, I better collect them because it would be interesting just to have all of them sort of next to one another. Mm. Um, but it's been it's been really interesting to see that the ones that I didn't sort of think would associate as much do associate the most so mm. that's been that's been definitely a that's been definitely a surprise i think at the the sort of data collection level so when i was actually measuring you know with measuring tape um all these different pelvis you talk about uh things like um sexual dimorphism so the differences between males and females um at the skeletal level in all of your classes you learn about how uh, the male pelvis looks in one way and how the female pelvis looks in another and I didn't really get it until I saw just under 300 uh, male and female pelvis from different parts of the world at different periods mm -hmm. of time. Um, you start to go, oh, I think I get it now. Right. <laughs> That's yeah. a lot of bones to be looking it at. Is, yeah. It is. It mm. is. Um, which is also um, that in itself is an interesting experience because I think a biological anthropologist, we're very much taught to think about um, 
It's an interesting kind of position because you have to sort of ride ride the edge of thinking about these um, these individuals as men and women compared to as specimens. Mm. Um, you know, in the end, you must always remember that these are these are the bodies of men and women who who thought, who dreamed, who um, had a life, mm. um, and that that's part of the the work that you do has to be respectful and ethical in that sense, absolutely. But at the same time, just to be able to sort of get through some of the work you do, there are moments where you you have to sort of think, you know, I, this this is this is something I must measure. You know, this is something I have to sort of I have to sort of get through and put some some values in an Excel spreadsheet. Mm. Um, so it's it's an interesting sort of you know seesaw motion in um, in thinking about you know you get home at the end of the day and you're making dinner and you sort of go oh yeah I looked at the you know the pelvis of 10 or 12 or how many, you know, men and women who have lived, who lived sometimes, you know, 200 years before I am now, Hmm. Um, which gives you a, both a distance and an intimacy that is, that's very, very odd. But I think that it's, it's really, it is really important to keep sort of in mind that these are people, these Hmm. are men and women. I think that, you know, talking to your point earlier about this idea of bone as a living tissue, we don't tend to think about that of skeletons. We think skeletons are sort of the shell that's left over after someone has lived their lives. But they represent, they are people Mm -hmm. um, that we're we're, we're dealing with and that um, it's it's kind of odd to sort of um, sit down and think about the fact that, you know, even particularly when you get to to see the, the names of these individuals and think about, how old they were and um, the lives they might have lived, whether they whether they were married, whether they were not married, you know, whether mm-hmm. they were happy, um, whether they were healthy, you know, all these in, like, in their lives sort of think about um, the fact that they are people and that they were walking around just like you and I um, at one point. And it, it's – it's um, there are a couple of times where you, you I had to sort of take a step back and go – like wow right yeah you have to sort of let it sit with you um but i think that it's really important to keep both of those the sort of more scientific detached element and the human element together at the same time to keep them balanced because Mm -hmm. you're not you know you're not dealing with atoms you know Mm -hmm. you're dealing with um components of of people Mm -hmm. Oh, man, we're out of time. That has flown by. Oh. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for uh, being my guest today. It's been fascinating talking to you about this. Um, and best of luck at Cambridge. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon. If you want to listen again, visit our website, cfuv.uvic.ca. The music you heard today is from Solar Mass Collective Volume 2, the song VOC by Kimchi Kitty. Kitty.